Advertising fraud steals billions of dollars every year. BuzzFeed reporter Craig Silverman reports on advertising fraud and its impact on the internet. In one investigation, Craig uncovered a mobile advertising fraud scheme in which four people stole millions of dollars, perhaps as much as $75 million or even $750 million. We don't know the exact numbers, but they did so by serving advertisements to automated users on mobile applications. The scheme worked as follows. A shell company called We Purchase Apps would buy legitimate applications from legitimate app developers. Then, the new owners of this legitimate application would record the behavior of the real users on those apps. So imagine a trivia game where somebody has developed a trivia game, some people are downloading it, some people are using it, and the trivia game has monetized with ads. This company, We Purchase Apps, would buy this real legitimate app from those creators who have made the trivia app. And then they use the behavior of the users on those apps to train models of fake users who could replicate that behavior. So imagine somebody purchases this trivia app from the original creators of the trivia app, and then they record the user behavior, and then they train machine learning models based off of that legitimate behavior. Now that you've got a user model, you can just spin up as many fake users as you want, and those fake users are going to consume advertisements just like real users. Then the new owners of this trivia app would earn all the money generated by displaying ads in these apps. This is a very simple scheme. It's easy to pull off. It did not require much sophistication in terms of engineering or business skills, and it took place across many, many mobile applications. If a group of four people can generate tens of millions of dollars, how much ill-gotten capital is being generated by large corporations that are deeply involved in the advertising market? Craig's article went viral, and he has followed it up with several other pieces about ad networks, fraud investigations by Google, and the potential for mobile apps to be used for large-scale surveillance of Americans by the Chinese. Craig is the most dedicated reporter covering advertising fraud today. His work is invaluable because he's asking difficult questions about the economics of our internet. As we discuss in the episode, there is currently no effective means of automatically detecting a bot from a human on the internet. Consider the ramifications of this. We cannot detect who is a bot and who is a human. We've discussed this in detail on previous episodes about advertising fraud, the advertising industry as a whole, advertising analytics, and the various techniques of ad fraud. Ad fraud is not the fault of any one party. There is not a big bad villain that is orchestrating all of the ad fraud. It's an emergent result of the way that our internet is set up. And it's as hard to imagine a world without advertising fraud as it is to imagine a world without email spam. I really enjoyed talking to Craig, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as well. Craig Silverman, you are a journalist with BuzzFeed. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You investigated a large advertising fraud ring that stole tens of millions of dollars, and we'll get into the mechanisms of the 
ad fraud ring, but I want to start with why you found yourself researching advertising fraud. How did you get into that subject? Right. Well, so it started close to two years ago. And my background is that I have been looking at uh, different types of digital deception and media manipulation for a while. This is sort of my, my beat and my focus. A lot of that has been around online misinformation. So completely false stories spreading on Facebook and other platforms, trolling campaigns, bots, all the different ways that this new media environment we have can be exploited and manipulated. So as you know, at the end of 2016, I was, of course, writing a lot about um, political misinformation and did a lot of reporting there, not only in 2016, but long before that. And then as we got into 2017, I was sort of casting about and saying, you know, if things are so messed up there, where else are they messed up? And people started telling me, you need to look at advertising, you need to look at ad fraud. And I had, I had no idea really what was going on with that and quickly realized, oh, wait a second, people are stealing billions and billions of dollars and nobody is going to jail. People aren't losing their jobs. The industry has just seemed to have come to accept it. And for me as a journalist, I just, you look at that and you say, well, there must be tons of stories there and nobody's writing about them because, you know, while some people, of course, in the industry do care, there's really been no scrutiny about it from the press, which just blew my mind. And why do you think that is? Why hasn't there been scrutiny from the press? Well, I think there's probably a couple of factors. So one is that it is a technical thing. And for a journalist to kind of get up to speed on it, and then to be able to go and find the really good, interesting stories that can actually break through and have a larger audience care about them, that's tough. And to have a newsroom that's going to give you the time to do that, also difficult. Everybody in newsrooms are overloaded. You know, journalists, about 2,000 media jobs have disappeared in the last couple of weeks in North America. So I think there's that tricky element of the technical stuff and the, the time to get up to speed. And then also making people care about it. How do, you, how do you talk about this in a way where people care the fact that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars might have been stolen from brands? Brands aren't the most sympathetic thing in the world. So those are all reasons why for coverage choices, people don't focus on it. And then I think the other piece is that, of course, we have an industry press, a trade press that covers marketing and advertising. And they would, you would think they would be the ones to do this. But they don't tend to do investigative work. They don't tend to really dig in and reveal the seedy stuff going on in an industry. And I think, frankly, of course, they have to run events as part of their business models. They need to have relationships with vendors. So if they're going out there and calling people out and you know, making things uncomfortable for vendors and other people in the industry, well, that's, that's a bad thing for their business. So unfortunately, I think there's a few factors that have made it so that journalists aren't really looking into it. And so that level of scrutiny isn't getting applied on top of, you know, some of the industry things that happen. What are some of the ways that advertising fraud manifests? There are a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I've come to understand is that, you know, people, whatever new technology is rolled out, whatever new ways people can bid on ads, whatever new advertising formats, fraud follows that. And if the money flows into it, fraud follows that. So on a basic level, you can have scenarios where somebody sets up, you know, a website where they just they copy content or buy some cheap content, put that on it. And then they either create, say, bots or pay for bots to go and visit the pages where they have ads and they earn money. So that's a basic kind of ad fraud where, 
you know, you've, you've created kind of, you know, fake or low quality media, and then you've created a or purchased a simulated audience to make sure those ads get viewed. So that's on a really simple level of it. Stuff that's a little more complex is in these real time bidding exchanges where, you know, a, a website or an app is making inventory available for brands to bid on and place their ads at. Um, sometimes people are going in and they're pretending to be, say, BuzzFeed.com, or they're pretending to be the Wall Street Journal. And somebody thinks they've bought an ad that is is running on one of those, you know, known properties, but instead it's actually, you know, just just running on a completely fabricated website. And so that's another way where it's, you know, called spoofing, where people are pretending to be real media and pocketing the dollars. And so, you know, from fake media and fake audience, you get so many different kinds of permutations. And another one that I wrote about recently just to you know, pick another type out is called you know attribution fraud. And so, a lot of mobile app makers, you know, they they want to drive installations of their app, and so they go out and they they'll pay what's called a bounty. And so, if you through your advertisement get somebody to install, you know, say Uber, then Uber is going to pay you maybe you know two dollars, three dollars, something like that for that. And so, you have a bunch of apps. That once they're on somebody's phone, they're looking to see if people are downloading other apps and they're they're injecting their own kind of attribution for it, saying, hey, I caused this person to download Uber onto their phone. You need to pay me out. And this is a rampant practice. The story I did recently was about a, a huge Chinese developer of mobile apps called Cheetah Mobile, which, you know, several of their, their apps were, according to data that we were shared, were engaged in that kind of attribution fraud. And Google actually ended up removing one of their apps completely from the store. And, you know, that investigation continues. When ad fraud occurs, where is the money actually being stolen from? Who is losing in this equation? This is one of the things that is kind of wild about it. I mean, one, the ad fraud is occurring because there are so many different middlemen in the placing of an ad. There there was an example done recently where people tried to kind of figure out the way an ad got placed on a well-known website, the Business Insider, and how many people touched it on its way there. And it's incredible how many people are trying to take their cut and their piece. And that complexity is what creates these opportunities for the fraudsters. But at the end of the day, even if there are, you know, five, six, seven different hands, seven different middlemen from somebody trying to place an ad till it actually ending up on the site, at the end of the day, the people who are losing the money are the advertisers, are the brands. And so if you're a company like P&G, who's spending, you know, one of the biggest advertisers in the world... You have to think if you're going to spend a billion on advertising, you're probably going to lose somewhere between 15 and 30% of that to fraud. And you're not necessarily going to know that unless you go and you are rigorously looking through all of the places that your ad showed up. And so you can imagine that's a Herculean task for an organization to do. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the brands. The brands are losing their money. It's getting stolen because they're the ones spending to try and reach people. Right. So I think one analogy we could draw is how in the 2008 housing crisis, there was a huge network of different securities that were being sold and repackaged and resold and repackaged. But ultimately, the person who got hung out to dry was the owner of the real estate who had taken on some sort of debt. 
and they they really got uh, damaged. And the same thing is is happening to the brands, where you have all these middlemen of ad agencies and ad networks, and we would need an audiobook length podcast to actually dissect the spaghetti of different players in the advertising world. But the the end result is that the brand is the one who is suffering. So why aren't the brands rebelling at this? Yeah. Well, so to a certain extent, they are. And I think we've seen really over the last two and a half years, brands demanding more accountability for where their money goes. But it is it is wild to think of how many years they just sort of accepted, you know, what was being told by them by their agency or the other partners they were working with that, oh, yes, you know, you met your campaign goals, congratulations, you know, everything went well. And so, you know, they are agitating for more. There, there's an industry initiative called ads.txt, which is, you know, requiring websites and soon hopefully mobile apps to kind of disclose which networks they work with so that people can compare and not have spoofing happen. There are other industry initiatives that are happening. And then you have people like, for example, you know, the chief marketing officer of Procter & Gamble did give a speech uh, about a year and a half ago where he talked about the murkiness of the industry, where he talked about the theft that was going on. And so they're agitating. But here's, here's the thing about this. This industry, the digital marketing, digital advertising industry, is set up in a way where there's so many incentives for people not to report fraud, for people to continue to allow it to happen. It is so completely messed up. And, and you would wonder, okay, no, no brand wants to lose their money. Obviously, they want to reach the right people. But let me give you, let me give an example here. So I did a story at the end of 2017. And yeah, I looked at a bunch of you know, seemingly reputable digital publishers who had all decided to go out and buy audience. So if you're, you know, a reputable digital publisher, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed to be paying somebody to funnel audience to you. You're supposed to have built a brand that people come to maybe from your Facebook page or other things. And so they had all decided to buy this cheap traffic to sort of see if it worked on their site and if if these people they were buying came back. Um, and the, the traffic turned out to be fraudulent. And so we exposed that and we exposed the publishers that had been buying it. And in one case, one of those publishers had bought this traffic and directed it to the sponsor content from a major bank. So you would have to think, you know, the bank would not be happy about this. The bank would go to that publisher and say, wait a second, you know, we paid for, for real people to view these these sponsored stories. And instead, you go out, you buy cheap traffic and you throw it at it to meet our, our metrics, to meet the campaign goals. And so I informed the bank of this. They were very grateful. They looked into it. Um, But at the end of the day, they didn't actually want to publicly say, yes, our partner had ripped us off here. They didn't want to do that. They gave me a statement where they actually claimed that the sponsor content that I identified, having received this traffic, wasn't actually part of their agreement. And so, so this is a case where clearly you know, something completely improper had happened, but they publicly do not want to call out their partner. And I think the reason is that if you're that CMO, then you've got to explain to your CEO why you entered into a partnership that ended up like this. And then they're naturally going to question, well, how much of your other spend is being wasted? How much of your other spend is going to fraud or, you know, or misleading things? And so everybody wants the budgets to continue. Everybody wants to get their big budget from the board and from the CEO, and they want to be able to spend it however they can. And if suddenly everybody loses confidence in the ecosystem, whether it's boards and CEOs to other people, then the money's going to dry up. So even the brands themselves, I have seen cases where they don't really want to rock the boat on this 
I mean, I've heard that in that case, you know, there was obviously some negotiation and talk behind, you know, behind the scenes. But in terms of a public calling out of this, they didn't want to do it. And I think that's a really big problem that exists in the industry right now. To present another tortured analogy, sometimes think of this as kind of like climate change, where you see, and not to get into like a debate about climate change, but you see these isolated incidents where like you have gigantic fires in California, or you have these tremendous storms that are occurring. And, you know, you look at these things, you're like, this seems abnormal, and this seems somewhat disconcerting. But it's really hard to quantify what is going on in the macro picture, you know, with regards to climate change, or, you know, or forget if it's humans or not, or whatever, just like what's going on. And advertising fraud kind of feels like that, where you see these isolated incidences where, like the reporting that you do, which is why it's so important, you uncover these gigantic fraud schemes that are conducted by like four people. And you're like, oh my God, this is concerning, concerning, but you have no way of knowing the scope of it, because how would you even crawl the internet for for the scope of it, and that's why you you know you see these these estimations like oh nineteen billion dollars is going to be lost to advertising fraud, and these are are such unscientific quantifications. Do we have any way of knowing how much money is being lost to advertising fraud? I think that nobody knows the real number. It's wild, isn't it? And this is it's such a crazy thing because the promise of digital marketing was supposed to be the ability to measure, the ability to reach the right person at the right time with the right message and know whether you reach them. You know, all of the tracking, all of the analytics, this was supposed to usher in a new age of marketing. And instead, we have just oceans of garbage data and an insane amount of fraud. And I think, you know, the promise of digital media has been squandered. And so do we know how much is being stolen? No, I think you know, I talk to people all the time and, you know, what's the percentage of digital ad spend that's that's being, you know, stolen by fraud? Well, if you talk to people in the industry, you know, who are who have an interest in kind of making it seem like it's not such a big deal, they talk about numbers where it's like, oh, it's, you know, maybe 5% or less than 5% or 10% at the most. And they put out their numbers to reflect that. And then you have other people, you have, you have vendors who sell technology that they say will protect you, the brand, from fraud. And of course, they cite extremely big numbers. And so everybody has their own self-interest. Everybody's got their own statistics. Everybody's got their own methodology. And at the end of the day, I, I do have some sympathy for the brands and the agencies and others because you're just getting whiplash from all the different takes and all the different you know, people with different interests, self-interest. Who are who are just messing with you? So I think that's I think that's a huge problem. And you know the climate change analogy is probably a good one. I do like your financial analogy. I read Flash Boys recently, which is of course you know the uh, the story about high frequency trading, and a lot of that really resonated with me when I looked at you know you know what was being laid out there, where what was going on in high frequency trading was you had people who really understood how the technical elements of stock exchanges worked. And, you know, to give it a really quick summary, I mean, they realized that if they positioned their servers for, you know, making orders and for watching the orders happening on the exchange, if they positioned their servers close to the ones of the actual stock exchanges, well, they could get information before other people, they could act on it, and then they could could basically take money from people because they, they saw stuff happening before other people saw it happen. And I think that is a lot of what's going on in ad fraud you have people who understand the technical elements of ad exchanges, of programmatic ad buys, of all the different things going on. And instead of using that knowledge to you know, be a good player, they use it to exploit. 
and they add no value. They're just taking money out of the system. They're exploiting the knowledge and the understanding they have, and they're exploiting how opaque and how, how many middlemen and how many technical layers there are in that infrastructure. I think, I think that, to me, reading that book really resonated. I think you know the, the cancer that high-frequency trading was uh, for the stock market, we're seeing that with ad fraud, where insiders are really exploiting their knowledge. And people who think they're really savvy, people who think they're really savvy marketers are the ones who are getting exploited, just like you know traders at well-known banks were getting exploited because they didn't, they didn't realize that their trades were being seen by, by these systems, these algorithms, before it was getting to the rest of the market. This is, of course, why many of the biggest ad exchanges are based in New York. Yeah, yeah. The infrastructure that's there, it's not a coincidence, I think, that you, you see that, that happening as well. And, you know, there's other pockets of, of kind of ad tech as well. You know, the big investigation that you, you mentioned at the top, it turned out that at least a couple of the people who were, you know, at the top of that fraud scheme were actually based in Israel. And there's a huge amount of ad tech companies in Israel. And so wherever you have a cluster of ad tech companies, you have a cluster of fraud happening as well, because that's where the expertise is. And that's that's where all the, you know, the buys and the sells are happening. Now, because you are one of the, actually, I think I'll be completely honest, I think you are the best journalist at covering this topic, just because of the depth that you have uh, have crawled down into the muck of this stuff. And I've tried to cover it in, in the podcast, and just like people don't really seem to care, or they don't really seem to understand that just the ramifications of, of, of what this suggests about the realities of our internet. But because, because you have crawled down those depths, uh, I want to break out the tinfoil hats a little bit earlier in this episode than, than I would normally. What role do you think Facebook and Google have in this ad tech world? Yeah, well, I mean, the, these are the, you know, the 800 pound gorillas or however you want to talk about it. Now, they have slightly different roles. I mean, let's, let's start with Google here. So Google is, Google is the most dominant player in all of digital advertising. In every single part of you think about the tech stack of digital advertising, Google is a player in basically all of them. If you want to make inventory available for other people to buy it, you can do that through Google. If you want to go out and buy inventory, you can do that through Google. If you want to place ads, you can do, I mean, it's just nonstop. It's, and it even goes into the mobile world where, of course, Google created the Android operating system and Google has the dominant Android app store, the Play Store. Google also has a dominant mobile ads, you know, SDK, where if you want to get ads in your mobile app, well, you can work with Google to do that. So they are everywhere. They're up and down the chain. And of course, if you accept that fraud is a reality, which everyone does, they disagree on, you know, the depths that it, it goes to. But if you accept that fraud is a reality, and you understand that everybody along the process, from a brand deciding to spend its money to that ad getting placed in an app or on a website, everybody through that process makes money. If you realize that Google is every can potentially be at every step of that process, well, then you realize that Google does make money from fraud, 100%. And Google has teams dedicated to ferreting it out. They've done some good work exposing some things. But there is a, a tension at the core of Google's operation whereby, you know, stamping out fraud would actually, you know, take billions and billions out of the ecosystem and probably would affect their bottom line. And so, you know, one of the discussions in the industry that happens a lot is Google trying to walk this line of, you know, caring about fraud and trying to stamp it out, but also at the same time making money from it. 
there's where Google sits. And it's, I mean, it is, it is a huge, huge impact um, that they have on, on digital advertising, which is why senators like uh, Mark Warner are really looking at that and saying, like, do they have too dominant a position? Facebook, a little bit different. You know, Facebook, obviously, people buy ads on, on Facebook. And, and the, those ads, I think for the most part, Facebook's a pretty effective advertising platform. And Google or Facebook rather also has an ad network with people off of Facebook. So similar to Google and AdSense with Facebook, you can sign up to Facebook audience network and you can monetize your app and you can monetize your website with them. So there we have Facebook with a dominant platforms where the people are, where they can serve ads to them. Facebook also has, you know, different ad products where even if you're not on Facebook, you can help earn money through it. And so again, Facebook earns revenue from fraud. Anybody who is earning money from from digital ads being placed is earning money from fraud. And so they have a huge role and they both, you know, talk a very good game publicly about caring about it, but they are in a conflicted position because if fraud was completely wiped out, that would affect both of their bottom lines. And it's a really tricky position and it reinforces how the incentives in this industry are all screwed up. And one flavor in which this is not like the 2008 crisis is that there is so much legitimate value being created by these advertising systems. I mean, ads really work for some businesses in some contexts. But, you know, one thing that you cover in in your article about we purchase apps and fly apps and this network of four people that made, you know, between probably 75 and $750 million, something like that, is that there is this this i call it traffic laundering where basically you have like some legitimate traffic and then you also have some bot traffic and you train the bot traffic to look like the legitimate traffic such that it becomes almost indiscernible who is real and who is fake and you funnel so much real and fake traffic through the systems that it becomes impossible to discern who is real and who is fake i mean it's it's a wild thing this is this specific specific attack people often refer to it as a recorded attack where you know they're they're recording the behavior of actual real human users on a website in a mobile app and then once they've gathered that and they understand where the user's coming from, what time of day are they you know, in the app, um, how long do they spend, where do they tend to click, all of these things. You know, one, realize that when you're using an app, you've probably given permission for them to completely record what you're doing. So people should be aware of that. And then second, because of that, because of the permissions that we hand over, because of, or, or you know, on the case of a website, because of, of the good open protocols on the web, people are able to really get down to the nitty gritty and unsavory folks have been doing these recorded attacks. They're not entirely new, but the sophistication of them continues to advance. And it is, it is such a freaky thing to think that a real human audience was tracked and cloned, and then pr- that exact behavior was programmed into bots to then go and load those apps. And if you think about the ramifications of that, you know the goal here is, one, to, of course, increase their audience, which increases the amount of ad revenue they can get. But two, it's to bypass the fraud technology, the fraud detection technology that is built in. And, the, you know, this, this exposes one of the flaws in a lot of the fraud vendors, anti-fraud vendors that are out there where they're taking kind of a data science approach where they're sampling the traffic and saying, okay, here's, here's what our baseline looks like. And now, wait a second, we've just got new traffic that is way off of the baseline. This looks like fraud to me. And so if on the fundamental basis, the fraud, the bots are based on real human behavior, 
you're going to be able to bypass a lot of the fraud detection that is out there. And it shows you know, how clever and smart a lot of the fraudsters are. It shows how they understand exactly how, how fraud detection is done. And they build their systems to get around that and to evade that. And I think the larger thing here, taking it out of the realm of ad fraud for a second, is that people need to realize you know, the, the amount of real traffic versus fake traffic on the internet as a whole. I mean, it, there are some days where there's a lot more fake traffic than real traffic. This is the world that we've built. And it's, it's really a profound and, and mind-boggling thing to realize that, you know, on a lot of days of the year, there's more bot traffic than actual human traffic on the internet. And the implications for that in advertising are massive, but also for other parts of, of the things we do every day. Yes, I'm so glad to have found somebody who, with a tinfoil hat size that is the same as mine. You know, this is like why I've tried to do interviews with some of these bot detection companies. If you look into the episode history, I have done one or two shows with bot detection companies. And you get to a point in the conversation where you say, okay, so how do you detect who is real and who is fake? And they're like, oh, well, we have this combination of signals and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, so if somebody makes it through your system, how do you know that's not just like a false negative or a false positive or, or however you, you would want to put it? And they're like, well, we, we really can't tell. And I'm like, so how do you make these guarantees that you catch 80% of bots? And they're like, well, we, you know, that's, that's what we think we catch. And you just, you hit this point of circular arguments and it's crazy. It, it's like a, it's like a technological dogma where you hit these circular arguments and it's just like it's like are we living in the same universe have you have you encountered these people with this with this cognitive dissonance yeah i mean it's you if you like me and your inbox is filled with people putting out press releases about fraud detection technology and stuff like that i mean you you see so much garbage you see so many ridiculous claims that are coming through and and so you have you have a real snake oil problem that's not to say every fraud detection vendor is snake oil. I mean, on a lot of the stories I've done, I've gone to these companies, you know, to see what data they have to compare it against what I'm finding. And, and this is actually a really telling thing for me is that on any given story, there may be a couple of, of you know, fraud detection vendors who are really helpful who say, yes, you know, a year ago, we saw that this traffic was coming, we blocked it. Here's what we saw from them. And they, they can often share stuff that you can sort of validate and put up against what you have. But there are also cases where, and this is another huge problem in the industry, there are also cases where I might be investigating, say, a particular publisher. And that publisher has paid one of these fraud detection vendors to kind of, you know, verify and validate its traffic to say, yeah, yeah, this, this site has, you know, 95% uh, real human traffic, you know, and then advertisers feel safe buying it. Well, if I find something that shows there's a problem with that publisher and one of these fraud detection vendors is, is basically verifying them and saying they're clean, that vendor wants nothing to do with me. So on any given story, a fraud detection vendor can be extremely helpful to me or because they're being paid by a particular party, they clam up and they won't talk to me. And, and this is a huge problem where these vendors will take money from everybody in the ecosystem. You can be a brand and pay to, you know, to validate uh, site or the you know, ad slot you want to buy. You can be a publisher and pay different people to say that your stuff looks really good. And as long as everybody will take money from everybody, there's no one who's sitting there and willing to actually call it out. And so, you know, there's some problems with the methodology and some companies that are absolutely snake oil. But even a lot of the good ones, they're taking money from everyone. 
So on any given moment, they may actually be saying a complete garbage property is totally fine. So one thing that that I have I've seen is is it I see incentives in place that make it such that Twitter or Facebook would actually want bots on their platform because bots consume ads. Is that too paranoid to think? Well, I mean, I think, of course, they would prefer to have real human users, right? That, that's what they would love to have. But if you're in a case where, and I think it's less of a problem for Facebook and more of a problem for Twitter, but if you're in a case where growth is tough and you're up against huge behemoths with far more people, then the tendency to want to you know, grade something as an acceptable account that might be unacceptable somewhere else, I think that's there. And I, th- I think Twitter, as we all know, has a massive bot problem. It's only recently been starting to address it in any kind of a meaningful way. But at the end of the day, you know, Twitter wants to have as big an audience as possible. And so what they consider a bot, an automated account, a policy violation, and what other people might, there's probably a big gulf between that. And the reality, of course, is that bots do view ads. And if they want people viewing ads, they're going to earn more money if there are more bots viewing it. So again, yeah, we have this incentive problem where, you know, I I know there are people at these platforms who every single day wake up and try to rid, rid this stuff from there. There's no question about that. But then there's the business case. The business case is, you know, get away with what you can because your revenue is going to grow. And there is a big debate happening right now about the numbers that Facebook releases, the numbers that Twitter releases, where they estimate how many fake accounts or bots or what have you are on their their platforms. And the numbers, especially with Facebook, the numbers have been growing a huge amount. And yet Facebook isn't really acknowledging that, you know, the problem is getting worse. With Twitter, people have always suspected that their monthly active user numbers, the stats that they put out, um, have included a lot of really garbage accounts or automated accounts. And so there's a lot of skepticism about that. So again, yeah, we've got this scenario where I think they would all love to have real human users, you know, completely, but also, there is an incentive to allow a certain amount of bots to exist. There's a strong financial incentive. Well, you know, what you say about Twitter versus Facebook, I, I kind of think that the only reason we think there are more bots on Twitter than Facebook is that Twitter is this open world where you you don't have as much filter bubbling. But like in Facebook, you know, you have these isolated communities, like people don't actually see everyone else on the platform. That's why Twitter is more fun uh, in many cases. But, you know, Facebook has these isolated communities of like people where if you're not, if you don't have a close connection to them, like if there's 18 degrees of separation between you and a bot, you're never going to see that bot. So we don't really see the full picture of Facebook as often. I think that's true. Yeah. And this is one of the biases that uh, journalists and a lot of researchers have, which is that Twitter is a more open platform. You know, you can get more information from its API. You, it's better for, for researching. It's easier to research. And so, yeah, we have this kind of level of scrutiny on it that is probably <laughs> unwarranted given the amount of people who are on it compared to Facebook. Facebook is much more of a black box and they're actually becoming more and more opaque because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. They're turning off a lot of the APIs and other things that were you know, previously available and open to you. And so it is hard. And it's also, I think, a lot harder to identify a bot on Facebook than a bot on Twitter. And I've you know, worked at doing both. I went down a crazy rabbit hole last summer where I thought I, I had you know, come across a really massive botnet pushing out hyperpartisan political content. 
But when I got down to the user level and started to figure out if these belong to real people or not, the crazy thing was that I would figure out that there was a real person with this, with this name in this location. And in some cases, I had email exchanges with them or phone calls with them where it was usually older people oh, who were like, yeah, you know, I just use Facebook a lot. And, and these were folks who would, in the span of five minutes, you know, just hit the, you know, the reshare button like 30 times. It looked like automated behavior, but they were actually real users. There is something about behavior on Facebook, I think, uh, and I'm trying to really dig into this more, particularly around older users, where they're behaving in ways that do not seem human. It's really I weird. I know. I've seen it. I, I and I say I say it that way because I've, I think a lot of people can relate. Well, because yeah. literally, like I've seen it in relatives. <laughs> you know, you like yes, that's you it. see your older relatives sharing this insane stuff, and you're like, this, like, aren't you the elder? Like, don't you have like a sense of this being completely fabricated? And they don't because they didn't grow up on the internet. Yeah, and I think a lot of us. I think a lot of us are struggling to adapt to this new media world. It really is different. And as much as I'm kind of interested in trying to figure out how much age is a factor or not, I think all of us are having cognitive difficulties at times to really deal with these streams of information and all of the sources and information overload. But it does seem like, particularly for for older folks who are trying to grapple with this, um, there are certain behaviors and certain things that makes it seem like it's it's, a particular difficulty or even more difficult for them. And I I would also caution against assuming that younger people are always naturally great with this stuff. I think they too need um, some of the skills to navigate this world. And it's going to take us a long time to adapt to this. I I think that's the bottom line for me is it's, it's not just like, you know, you get used to using Facebook, or you get used to using Twitter, it's a very different way of consuming information. And the consequences of that, I think, are still yet to play out. Now, we've been talking mostly about logged in experiences. So, you know, if you're on Facebook, or you're on Twitter, or even kind of on, on I guess, on, on Android, in many cases, you're engaging in a logged in experience where there is at least some identity information associated with you. But there are these other cases where it is it is more of a logged out experience. So like when ad fraud takes place on the open web, it's even more of a wild west uh, because there's there's kind of less signal for these companies to potentially filter out who is a bot and who is a human. And in this in this um, fraud investigation that you did, one part of it was you you this these set of fraudsters. And I know we're not really delving down into the story as much as I, I would have liked. Maybe maybe we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But people can certainly read this uh, the story that went viral that you wrote, and I'll include it in the in the show notes. But the fraudsters they operated these several web properties where they had fake video advertising. Can you describe how the fake video advertising on the websites, like just just to give people another perspective into how one of these schemes works, describe the fake video advertising websites? You know, there's there's kind of two flavors actually that have come out recently. So one in the, in the story I wrote where the guys, they had like, you know, over 125 Android apps and they also had these websites, as you mentioned where, you know, basically these, these were websites where there was, there was like nothing there. They had just licensed the content from, from some content providers, just put them up and they, you know, copied and pasted the same about text on every website or they plagiarized it from elsewhere. There wasn't really a real audience on them. Like I think what happened is they bought the audience and then cloned it. 
And then, you know, and we're showing them video ads. And the reason for video ads being such a big thing is, of course, the CPMs are higher. You earn more money for showing a video to someone than you do showing a banner ad. And in the case of the video stuff, I mean, these were just video plays that were being logged as having happened. You know, the users looked real enough that it was being allowed by the fraud detection companies. And these guys were just racking up insane amounts of video views. You know, some of the some of these video sites where if you looked at them, you would realize no one would go to this site. No human would go to this site because there was really nothing there except this really silly generic celeb content. You know, some of them had insane amounts of available ad inventory, meaning that you know, they were claiming to be serving, you know, millions of impressions a day to users. This sort of exposes one of the fundamental problems where you have all of these brands deciding to pay for data science driven detection. But literally, if they sent a human to visit these sites, they would realize they would never want to advertise on them. But because so much is done automatically and programmatically, and because the audience looks great, great, because it's engineered to look great, this stuff goes through. And the second Example here, aside from what what those fraudsters were doing, there was a a huge fraud scheme called Methbot, which has actually resulted in multiple indictments and two guys being extradited to the United States. And they're trying to extradite some others, but one of them is in Crimea. He's, He's not getting extradited. And so in this case, these guys actually built kind of a fake web browser. So, you know, a headless web browser, which is often used for testing and other things. They built a web browser that would just make itself appear in the ad systems as if it was a real website with a real audience serving up tons of video. And they basically just created this fake web browser that they loaded on tons of different data centers and ran like crazy. And it just ran tons and tons of video ads and they earned millions and millions of dollars. So they didn't even actually need to set up you know, much of a website, even less of a project than the original, the other fraudsters. They really just built this clever web browser that fabricated everything about an audience and everything about a website so that people would actually think they were, you know, getting ads in front of real people. It's, it's wild. You know, if you have the technical expertise, the things that you can get, get away with are really remarkable. And, and I say that as a cautionary note, not as a how-to to anybody listening to this. Right. And, and just to, to give a little bit more context on this, this business that you covered, this four-person, at least four people. You, do you think it was more people or do you think it was just basically four guys that, that were running this business? So there were four guys at the kind of the top of the pyramid, two of whom had a background in uh, digital advertising and two of whom had actually run like an ISP in Germany. So you can, you can see how the technical expertise came together. But in order to actually execute the fraud, they did at times hire different people to do things like, you know, go out and license the content for those video websites. They worked with people to go out and, and acquire real apps that they could then move into the fraud scheme. So the four people were the, the core of it. But then they would, you know, have contractors and other people working with them at different times. But the design of the system and maintenance of the business really came down to four people to steal potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. And I mean, you know, if you think about the amount of people and, you know, money they needed to invest in this to get up and running in order to earn that much, I mean, it's that's a pretty good business. That's the problem. Fraud is a really good business. De minimis. It's, 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 It's easier to start an ad fraud company than to start a startup, basically. To my mind, absolutely. So, uh, not to give any yeah. of the entrepreneurial listeners any ideas. One thing I, I liked about the story is 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 how much of a story it was. I mean, it opens with this person who gets approached by this company. We, I think it's we buy apps uh, or we purchase 
we, we purchase apps. apps. So it's yeah. like you, imagine you're a developer and you make some random app in the app store and it catches some some you know virality. It's like you know you, you create the next Flappy Bird and somebody comes to you or you create like it's even something that's much worse than Flappy Bird, like like a workout app. Like this is your ab crunch app. And then somebody, you know, comes to you and says, hey, you know, we see you, you know, you're kind of popular. You've got like a thousand daily active users. We want to buy your app. And and you're like, all right, sure. How much are you going to pay me? And then they offer you much more than you anticipated. And you're like, well, yeah, sure. I'll sell you my app. And then they, you know, so we purchase apps, buys your buys your app. And, and then, you know, they, they take your thousand users and they record the, the behavior of those 1000 users. And then they, uh, they spin up, you know, 50,000 bots that replicate the, the thousand real user behavior. And they sell a bunch of ad inventory on the app. Is that how yeah. it works? I mean, that, that, that was a good, you know, it, it in a nutshell. And the interesting thing is, you know, these apps were that they were buying, none of them were, in most cases, with one exception, none of them were, were particularly like huge, big hits. In fact, that's that was what they targeted. They wanted apps that managed to build like a small, fairly loyal following that looked like real people, that had positive reviews, that had been around for long enough that it had a bit of a reputation in the Play Store and other places. And then they would approach these people. And so these were apps that they could buy for, you know, 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever, And the person who created it would be really happy because for them, it was a small little business and then they have to maintain the thing. And now they get a big cash payout and they walk away. Whereas for these guys, once they got the apps, they had an operation in Serbia where they had Android developers, tons of people who could then maintain the apps, who could update them, put in the the right ad uh, networks and things that they work with. And so they, they started to create this kind of scale where they had, you know, dozens and dozens of apps. And in a lot of cases, I had uh, an analyst from Malwarebytes analyze a bunch of the apps. And he found that, you know, they, they started to kind of create templates within the apps themselves. There would be the core functionality of what was often a game, but the rest of the stuff for ad serving and all of that, they pretty much cloned them. So you can see how they created efficiencies. But it's wild for me to think you know, you had the four people at the top, but they did actually have this business that that had a website and looked like a legitimate business that did employ a bunch of developers and other people to maintain these apps. And in some cases, they also developed new ones on their own. And so it was a wild operation to think that, you know, they came up with this, this solution of like, well, hey, rather than trying to build our own apps all the time and grow an audience, let's just pay money to get apps with real audiences. Let's clone them. And then it's, then it's just like you turn up the dial. You just turn up the dial, you double the audience, you triple the audience, quadruple the audience. And this was one of the things that some people got onto them for. So I actually did a follow-up story early this year about a company in Israel uh, called Wubi that these fraudsters had approached and wanted to, to help place ads in their, their apps with. And so Wubi did an initial due diligence. Everything looked okay. And so they had these apps in there. And Wubi only works with games. But after a little while, I don't know, six months or so, we'll be starting to be a little bit suspicious because these apps that weren't very high quality, that weren't really good games, suddenly their audience and the amount of, of ads that they were showing to their audience was really out of whack for their experience for other games. And it got to a point where some, some of the fraud vendors were starting to flag some of the traffic in these apps. There was one fraud vendor in particular called Protected Media who sort of saw what was going on early on. And Wubi eventually told, you know, three different, I think it was three or four different companies that had these apps that it can't work with them anymore because there's fraud in them. And Wubi didn't actually know that all of these companies were connected. They were different shell companies that these guys had set up to put different apps in 
to, you know, to go out and do ad deals. And the only way Wubi actually got onto things in the end, aside from the fraud, was they sent out a message saying, hey, can you, we want to send you a gift for Christmas. Uh, give us your address. And these four seemingly separate companies all sent the same address, which was you know, basically, I think it was in Malta. And it was just like a shopping center or a business center. It wasn't a real address. And they realized these four companies that they'd had some fraud problems with were all the same. And that's when they cut them off. And so they were smart in a lot of ways, but then they, they messed up and I was able to really expose them because they had made mistakes like reusing the same about text on their websites, like reusing the same address for different shell companies and other things that was able, you know, we were able to connect all of the stuff together. And, you know, the end of that story with Wooby is that when Wooby kicked them out and said, we're not working with you anymore, these guys actually sued them. So you have fraudsters who feel so emboldened that they will sue a company, even though they've been caught, you know, with their fraudulent inventory. And that case was only resolved at the end of very end of last year, in part because of, you know, me having exposed what was going on, they didn't pursue the case anymore. And so, I mean, that to me as a, a, an example of the industry there, where the lengths they go to, to set all this up, but the fact that they would even file a lawsuit after somebody caught them and try to get money from them, it like there's no fear. The fraudsters have no fear. You know, just give people some context on these apps. I think if I when I when I scroll through the the spreadsheet that you link to in your article of the apps, I mean, there is an element of humor to this whole story, and that's that's actually one reason I really like covering this area is because it's kind of ridiculous. But you look at these apps, and it's like Selfie Expert Pro, Plumber Mania, Minesweeper, like somebody's playing Minesweeper on their phone. I mean, there are I'm sure there are Guess the Restaurant Quiz, the Logo Trivia game. And it's like, you know, I know that you and I probably would never download these things. Maybe I would want the Grumpy Weather Widget or the Gluten-Free Food Finder. But, you know, you've I, occasionally, you maybe you're at Thanksgiving and, and somebody, like, hands you their phone. Like, on the rare occasion where you actually see somebody else's phone, I don't know about you, but I, ran, I occasionally, like, I'm just like, what? Why are you downloading this stuff? Like, it's so... You don't want to download this. This is a bad idea. People just don't know. They don't get it. Because it's like, you know, we remember back in the day when, you know, you download the toolbar and it starts sending you pop-ups and stuff. And those people are still around. The people who are making the, the pop-up toolbars are still around. They're just like a little bit more savvy. And that's what this stuff is. That's literally the case with this this scheme. Two of the guys ran toolbar companies before they moved into mobile apps. I mean, it's a, that's exactly what they did. They moved from that world of ad fraud to this one. And I mean, the app scenario is really, I mean, I probably use the word insane a lot so far, but, but what's going on, particularly in the Android ecosystem is absolutely insane. The amount of malicious, invasive ad fraud committing apps that are in the Google Play Store with tons of downloads and out there and available to people is completely out of control. And uh, I mean, we see examples of this all the time. I mean, some of the worst offenders are flashlight apps. Every phone comes with a flashlight now, but somehow there are flashlight apps in the Play Store that claim to have like hundreds of millions in some cases of ad impressions available every day for people to buy, as if people are using flashlights that much. And it's just such a clear example of fraud, but they're, they're there and they're available in the store. They're available in places like even Google's own you know, ad exchanges. And they're not being cleared out. And a lot of these apps are also taking insane levels of permission to the point where they can see everything you are doing on your phone. And people are not paying attention to what they're downloading. They're not paying attention to the permissions they're giving. And in a lot of cases, not to sound too much like I've put on an even bigger tinfoil hat, 
a lot of the biggest app companies are Chinese companies. And, and this is not a, oh. you know, an anti-Chinese oh, no. people thing. The issue here is that the Chinese government requires companies to make their data available for security oh, and intelligence no. reasons whenever the government asks for it. So you have literally hundreds of millions of people all around the world using Chinese-made apps that take insane levels of permission, that have huge amounts of data on you, and that data is literally being shipped to China where the Chinese military and security and intelligence apparatus can have free access to it. I mean, this is what is going on. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's 100% happening. How is it that there isn't anybody else reporting on this? Like, it's, it's so shocking. The app stuff gets more attention, and China right now is a big topic, but I don't think the app element of China has really been appreciated. People are focused on Huawei and, you know, device and equipment makers. And so I do think we're going to see more reporting on this this year, particularly on the China stuff. So what about Mark Warner? So this is the senator who has been vocal about advertising fraud. This is one of the few senators who seem a little bit more technologically savvy. What's he said? What are his actions revealing? So Mark Warner, I got to give him, and it was actually a letter that he and, and Senator Schumer sent back in 2016, before everybody became obsessed with Russian disinformation tactics as a result of the 2016 election in the US. They sent a letter to the FTC saying, you know, we are concerned about the prevalence of digital advertising fraud. We are also concerned about the dominant position of Google in it. You need to look into this. And then everybody kind of, you know, got distracted by other things. But when I did my uh, investigation of that, that big app fraud scheme in last fall, Mark Warner did send another letter to the FTC saying, you need to look into this. And, and because Google was you know, referenced very much in that story, he said, and you really need to look at Google's dominant position. And then when I did the story about um, Cheetah Mobile, the Chinese app company that was committing ad fraud and also taking huge amounts of permissions and data, you know, he again you know, said that uh, we need to consider Chinese mobile app companies a, a potential national security threat. And so he is really the only one in the U.S. government who has raised any kind of alarms about this. And unfortunately, his efforts to get the FTC to take this on have completely gone nowhere. You know, he's, he's actually been very clear and vocal to me in saying that they've basically ignored his letters, they've dismissed him, and he's unhappy about that. So we're going to see what happens this year, whether, you know, there's going to be more scrutiny of Google, whether the FTC might look into that. I mean, I think right now there's probably more of a chance that the FTC looks into Facebook than Google, but Mark Warner and his office seem to be very focused on ad fraud and also on, you know, potential data and security risks from Chinese equipment and app makers. So, I mean, I'm hopeful some movement might happen this year. What are you working on now? What kind of stories? So I do have some more ad fraud ones in the hopper. I mean, I could literally write about ad fraud every single day. (laughs) Join the club. The challenge, you know, which I, yeah, this is it. I mean, it's that big of a problem and it's not getting enough scrutiny that, that part of me wants to do that every day, but it's really hard to find stories. Like we're, we're, you know, a general site. We have an audience that is not a technical audience and that is not an ad industry audience. And so I have to find examples where the average person hopefully understands the stakes and feels like there's something affecting them. I'm continuing to look at Cheetah Mobile. I'm continuing to look a lot at, you know, the Chinese app companies, not just because of, you know, the security stuff that's going on, but also, you know, they've actually been quite successful. They have a lot of big apps in these stores. And it's interesting to look at, you know, the permissions they take and that kind of thing. I'm also very interested in, in just, you know, some of the scams that are out there, like, so a, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about how people are, are renting out their Facebook accounts. 
Um, so why would somebody rent out a Facebook account? Well, people rent out their Facebook accounts to organizations who want to then use their ads account that you you have attached to your Facebook account to run ads for often very shady products like skincare scams and, and you know, penis pills and that kind of thing. And so I'm looking more into that of how, you know, average people are, you know, earning 20 bucks a week, 100 bucks a month to give some random person total access to their Facebook account. And in some cases, total root access to their laptop and their router, you know, for, for like 100 bucks a month in order to let these people run shady ads. And this is something that, that people are doing out there. And it's, it's insane. And so looking at that and, and trying to figure out who's behind this is a thing right now. Well, Craig Silverman, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you, and I could not be a bigger fan of your reporting. Look, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate that you know, you've done several episodes now and that you're helping to put some awareness out there as well. So thank you. Wow.